Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. All right. Hi, everyone. Hebrews chapter 3. Let's get our Bibles out. We are going to only be going through six verses tonight. Um, So you can turn there. Um, As you're getting there, I'll give you a title. Um, Pulling it straight from the text. Um, The title for tonight is Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And I believe that that is what these six verses are trying to pull our hearts and minds to do tonight together. So I'm still here some pages turning, so I'll give you a moment. But we're going to read all of it um, just out in the front to get it before us, and then we're going to do some work tonight. I am so excited um, to get to study this with you. So let's read. This is Hebrews 3, verse 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Okay, as we can see, hopefully you've already seen this, this passage wants us to consider Jesus in a way that considers how he is much more glorious than Moses. Did you catch that? It's taking a pivot there and saying, count it as much more worthy than Moses. And as we do this, as the people of God, which hopefully you caught, Hebrews 3 lets us in on the fact that the people of God can also be called and considered the house of God. Do you see that? It says, if we are, um, and we are his house. So the people of God are the house of God. So the idea here, what we need to rally around tonight, is to let the truths about this passage fuel what it says in verse 6 our holding fast to confidence and boasting in our hope in Christ. I'm going to let you know, it's only six verses tonight, but we actually have a lot of scripture to look through because I'm hoping that you are going to see the beauty of biblical theology tonight. Now, if you're unfamiliar, I know some of you are believers this year, brand new to the faith, or maybe you've kind of been de-churched for a while, you're coming back, or maybe you just have been a while and haven't heard that term before, but the term biblical theology is a phrase that I want you to love. I want you to be able to see how the whole Bible fits together in one story that points to Jesus, and Hebrews is a great book to help us do that. And so tonight, you're going to get some framework for how to read your entire Bible. Um, In my study of this, I've gotten to see some incredible uh, commentary work, and there's some 
man, just some beautiful connections that happen as you see how biblical theology plays into the narrative of your Bibles. But I want us to remember something. This isn't just theological knowledge. It is fire on the altar of your heart as God's Spirit burns a love for God and faith in God that overflows out of your heart into the lives of other people on our campus. And so study outlines will say that Hebrews chapter 3 kind of starts a new section of Hebrews, but what I'm hoping is that you leave here more confident and more empowered to hold fast to what we have in Christ. That's where we're heading. All right, back to verse 1. Now, I want to read this at first without the qualifiers. Um, You see that? It says, therefore, I want to leave out holy brothers and leave out um, you who shared a heavenly calling. We're going to get back to that, but I want to pause and consider the command that is being put before us tonight. Therefore, consider Jesus. Now, remember, the power of the word therefore could mean in light of or because of the realities that you just saw. And so, once again, maybe some of you are new tonight, you haven't been with us, or if you have been, it's week four, so maybe you've forgotten We need to see once again the realities and the glorious argument that is being made so that we might understand the power and force that we need to consider Jesus all over again. All right, so I'm not going to give a full summary. I'm not going to preach three sermons right now, but I want to re-anchor us in what Hebrews has already taught. Okay, it's it's an argument culminating in this, these ideas. So the first thing you got to know to cherish and want to consider Jesus in in the right way, is remember that God has revealed himself in his word. Remember we saw this in chapter one, that the word in text, the library of the 66 books that we have in our Old and New Testaments, and the word in flesh, the person and work of Jesus Christ that fulfills the word in text. I've already mentioned this, but all of the Bible is about Jesus. All of the Old Testament pictures and patterns are showing off his beauty. And this is one reason why we need the book of Hebrews. Another reality in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is king. Our savior king who has redeemed us from sin, our warrior king who has defeated our enemies, and our savior warrior king who did all that was necessary to bring us into his kingdom and on his mission. You remember the Psalms, they were painting a picture of this king for us, and the response for us is to surrender, to worship, and to adore him. Chapter 2 introduced this idea that the king's message is reliable. You remember this, we considered that we need to pay much more attention. If this is true, if this is really from God, we cannot afford to not pay much more attention, because if we don't, we will drift. And that was when we had to consider that we can't neglect this salvation because we do not escape. We neglect it. More in chapter 2. It says the world to come is Jesus' kingdom. You remember this? The idea of already but not yet. That in some ways we are already fully redeemed, but it's not yet fully consummated, which will happen when Jesus returns. The kingdom of God broke in with the king coming to earth. And in his death and and resurrection, he unleashed his followers to live out that kingdom in word and in action. And as we do that, we know that the brokenness will end one day because the kingdom will come in full and end all suffering and sin. More from chapter 2. Jesus perfectly lived and died and rose again. Jesus' perfect, active obedience made him the perfect sacrifice to bring us back to God by grace through faith. And you remember this, another reality from chapter 2. Jesus is not ashamed of us 
because we're family by faith. You remember this? Jesus is not ashamed of his brothers and sisters because we are all children of his Father if you are in Christ. And then lastly, chapter 2 ended with this idea that Jesus is our great high priest, that he is the one who destroyed the devil, destroyed death, delivered us from the fear of death, knows our temptations, offers us help by his spirit and his word. And all of these realities, particularly Jesus being our great high priest, give us the more specific grounding to this command of considering Jesus. So, therefore, consider Jesus. The idea behind considering is to behold, to perceive, to understand, to discover. It is an active, focused, passionate attention to what is true. And then we see reasons to do it. Let's go back to the qualifiers. Therefore, holy brothers. Do you understand this? In Christ, you've been made holy. You've been made pure. You've been set apart to belong to God. And we have been made brothers and sisters. Anytime you see this family language, it is so important for you to consider the beauty and worth of a church family. The family of God is the church. And listen to me, you will not live out all that God has for you in Christ if you don't belong to a local church. I did not say attend one or pick your favorite one or podcast one. Belonging to the people that God has put in your life. It's a commitment to the people, not a commitment to the brand. So people who need to consider Jesus all over again right now, which is all of us, remember, if you're in Christ, we're a holy family. Next, what does this holy family share? You who share in a heavenly calling. We share this with Jesus and each other, a calling from God to God and for God. And this calling establishes our salvation and clears our purpose. Understand something. You belong in heaven while you are on earth. It's another angle of the glory of already but not yet. You have a calling that is from heaven. And so when things don't make sense on earth or you rub against the grain of things in the world, you should understand it's because your calling is not from the place that you set that you're sitting right now. So after two descriptions of the people of God, The author of Hebrews turns to descriptions of Christ for us to consider. Look back at the verses here. Therefore, holy brothers, you who shared a heavenly calling, consider Jesus two things, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. So, the apostle. Uh, Maybe you've heard this word before. It simply just means sent one. So Jesus was sent from the Father on his Father's mission. And then, maybe what you're more used to hearing is that he sends apostles to establish the church. Now, it is true. We are not apostles The capital A apostle office ended when they died. The canon, the 66 books of the Bible were closed, and there are not still capital A apostles around today. But, be that as it may, we are all sent as Jesus was sent by his Father. So one thing to consider as we're considering Jesus tonight, he was sent. Next, the high priest of our confession. Remember, part of what we are seeing in Hebrews is the fact that the whole Old Testament system and culture and books and prophets and priests and kings, all of it in our Old Testament, was meant to show off the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. If your Bible reading, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, doesn't end in seeing Jesus, you are not reading the Old Testament in the way that God would have you. And in that Old Testament system, in the Old Covenant, the high priests 
The ones who did the sacrifices and mediated between God and his people foreshadowed and found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the high priest of our confession. Not only was he the high priest mediating between God and us, he is the sacrifice itself. He is the high priest of our confession. He really did come and live and die and rise again to bring us back to God. And this means a million good things for you. But you really can have victory over your sin. You can actually live as someone who actually is a son or daughter of God because you have a faithful high priest. Verse 2 shows us more of what we need to consider. High priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was perfectly faithful to his Father's mission. Remember, we must learn to love and cherish the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Do you realize, Old Testament foreshadowing, but in the New Testament when he comes to earth, he's perfectly living out the story of the Old Testament so that we might see the fullest revelation of God. And then, these verses take an amazing turn that anchors the faithfulness of Jesus in the Old Testament story itself. I want you to see it. So, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, namely his father, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. So he compares this here, that Moses was faithful in his leading of God's people, and he was faithful in the quote-unquote building of God's house. So we need to stop and understand something here. Even though it should, and I hope that it does by the end of this sermon, it should mean a lot to you that we are supposed to consider Jesus as being like the true and better Moses. But even if it doesn't, maybe you're not familiar, maybe you've never heard of Moses, maybe you've never read the Old Testament, you're new to your Bibles, you need to understand that the audience, the original audience receiving this letter of Hebrews, this would have blown up off the page for them. Like, wait a second, just as Moses was faithful, we're supposed to see a glory of Jesus in Moses. Commentaries say that just bringing up Moses here would have made them all anchored into the glorious story of the first five books of the Bible. You understand this, Genesis through Deuteronomy is about Jesus. And there's something that should be, your spiritual ears should be perking up here, especially if you've read the Old Testament before, or maybe have seen a movie about it, or at least know who Moses is. There's something incredible happening, and you need to feel the beauty of this if you are going to rightly consider Jesus, worship Jesus in a Hebrews 3 kind of way. So, relook with me at verses 3 through 6 to let the rest of this passage springboard us into seeing the glory of Jesus in the story of Moses. And I'm so excited to get there that I need to remind myself to breathe and calm down and read these verses, okay? So, Three through six. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. All right, observations here. Yeah, slow down. All right, 
The point is that you should really see that Jesus is more glorious than Moses. At least see that. that. And Moses was amazing, right? That's a pillar of our faith. A giant in the Old Testament story. But one thing you have to see is that his life was pointing to something better. And there's a comparison here. Just like the builder of a house is more glorious than the house. That's how much more glorious Jesus is than Moses. Now, I'll admit, I can't build anything. Like, it's bad. Um, If you, like, had a list of the typical skills that you think a dad should have, I'm 0 for 10, if there's 10. I I can't even tell you how many there are. I just know that if they're there, I don't have them. And so, I I really can't build anything. Um, But even, and maybe some of you are there, right? Anybody else just, like, you're all too embarrassed to even say you can't build. So I know, I know you all are out there. Um, but even if we don't understand that, I can understand what it's trying to say. For every house is built by someone, of course, but the builder of all things is God. And so Jesus is counted as more glorious than Moses, as much, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So it's saying that house might be beautiful, but imagine the builder of that beautiful house. So, Jesus, by the way, literally created Moses (laughs) and orchestrated all of these things that would transpire in history as a way to prepare the world for his own arrival in glory. This comparison is not even close. We don't even, we could, good grief, Moses sinned, first of all, right? Jesus is already better than that. But literally all of his life meant to show a broken yet pointing ahead picture of the amazing glory that is our king, the builder of the house that we are a part of. There's something amazing happening. Moses was a servant in God's grand plan, but Jesus is the son of God. And then we see that we are that house. Isn't that amazing? We're a house. (laughs) The church, the people, listen, you are not in a church right now. You're not. We are in a building that our church uses as a way to love and serve the people in our city and on our campus. And we want you to come join the house, but you're not in the house, all right? The Lord, this is, we can only call this a holy place and call this the Lord's house because the Lord's house walked in here and drove itself here, all right? Something amazing happening when you start to realize that you are what Jesus is building. And as a church, clearly, what we're supposed to see and supposed to be are people or a house that holds fast to our confidence and boasts about our hope. All right, two more realities, and then we're about to show you something great. Okay, two realities to consider before we launch. One thing, counted as more worthy of, worthy of more glory. Did you see that in the text? For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And then, verse 5, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. He was a faithful servant of God. Why? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In what was testified in the Old Testament, it was meant to show off what would be spoken later in the person and work of Jesus Christ. My goodness. So, if you haven't read the Gospels in a while, there's this amazing little story that happens at the end of uh, Luke's Gospel. It's in chapter 24. And this is post-resurrection, so Jesus already defeated death, and he's risen again, and there's these uh, 
people that are walking along the road, Emmaus Road. And I love this. Post-resurrection, Jesus literally comes up and walks with them and basically is asking them why they're troubled. And they literally say, well, you haven't heard. He's like, they're literally telling him about what happened that he just did. It's really, it's a funny story. You should read it. But something happens when he opens their eyes to the glory of himself. He, it says that starting with the Old Testament, he shows them how all of those things were testifying to him. You know what it says? When they saw it, it says that their hearts burned. Their hearts burned. Man, that's what I want for you. My goodness, even if, even if this is the last time you ever come or join us, I want you to be men and women of the book, but not so that you learn cool Bible stuff. That it fuels a love and a burning for Jesus. And the Old Testament can do that if you see how it points you to Christ. Seeing this beauty of the Bible can change your entire life. And I want all of us to consider this Jesus. And so what we're about to do, I'm affectionately calling a Moses Gospel Blitz. Originally, it was going to be called a Moses Gospel Burst, but Burst sounded funny to me. And so we're doing Blitz. And, and I'm going to be honest, I want you to be overwhelmed in a good way. Um, I don't want you to be intimidated by this. I've learned a lot of this over the past 11 years of following Jesus and reading the Bible. And I even used an old sermon um, for some of this content. And I still had to go back and check commentaries and resources to make sure that I'm getting these things right. So I don't want you to be intimidated by this. I want your heart to burn. I want it to reignite a fire in you for knowing God through his word that you might pay much closer attention to this. We need our minds and hearts engaged and fully attentive so that we might leave here a burning house. So, the glorious story of Moses, a Moses gospel blitz. Here we go. In the beginning, all of history, God creates the world and people. Those people rebel and sin, and God was already moving and working to redeem sinful people. Do you know that Jesus is called the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world? What does that mean? That there was a redemption plan more glorious than you can ever imagine already in place before we even screwed this up. And so God calls a man named Abraham to have a people to himself, and God works through his promises to Abraham's family. And eventually, God calls a people to himself, and they are called Israel. Now, I know I just skipped a lot of stuff, but you do not want me to go through every chapter of the first five books of the Bible. So this group of people called Israel end up in a place called Egypt. And this is where the glory story of Moses starts. So Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 14. You don't have to turn there, but it's just the second book of your Bible. So if you want to flip over and see it, you can. But we got it on the screen. Here we go. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel, there's God's house, are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, um, Python and Ramses. Here's the key. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So this is the scene. 
God's people, God's house is enslaved. They're under oppression. Two incredible realities, though, I hope you caught in, about the people of God, about God's house. The more you try to crush us, the more we grow. Do you see that? But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. This has always been the case about the people of God. When persecution comes, the gospel gets brighter. Just like when the slavery got harder, the people kept multiplying. That's one reality. Second one, even when it seems like God is losing, he is moving and working. Please believe that. Even in your life, when you feel surrounded, the sin feels too great, suffering feels too oppressive, you feel completely disoriented from the reality of the gospel, you need to understand that God is not losing. The next part of this chapter describes the birth of a little baby boy named Moses. Remember that? That's the one that Jesus is more glorious than. And the Pharaoh at that time would eventually say that he wanted all of the Israelite sons to die. But God protected and preserved this little baby boy, and God started a rescue mission for his people, and it came through an unlikely source. A protected Israelite baby boy, literally put on a basket, floating through a river, ended up growing up in the Egyptian culture. What is God up to? All right, chapter 2, 23 through 25. The problem at hand that Moses was faithful to be used by God to address. Here we go. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Before we continue to launch into the story rather quickly, I want us to soak the true things about God that we just witnessed. Listen, your cries make it to God. God hears your groaning. God remembers his promises to us, and God knows. That's amazing. Think about the condition that those people were in, the souls, how just disheveled, disoriented they would feel. But even in that groaning, it makes it to God, and he hears. He remembers his promise. So let's see how God rescues his people. It starts with a burning bush. This happens in Exodus chapter 3. Moses grows up and notices a bush that is on fire but not burning. And so, funny enough, he decides to go up to it. I don't know about you. Not sure that would be my choice, but that's what he does. What we learn is that God is there. This bush representing, according to commentaries and sources, representing the all-consuming, never-stopping holiness of our God. God makes Moses take off his sandals and then speaks to him. And God tells Moses that he heard the cries of his people and that he was going to use Moses to rescue them. Moses is overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by this and needs to know how God is so sure that the people will listen to him. And God simply says, tell them I am who I am. Unbelievable confidence and power. So Moses is appointed and approved by God for the mission of rescuing the people of God. And so what we're about to have happen is Moses versus Pharaoh, or really, God versus Pharaoh. So the story continues. Moses and Aaron, his mission partner, go to Pharaoh and confront him. They tell him that God says to let his people go. Um, I always like to make note of this when I'm considering this story. How many of you all grew up in church and you remember the song, uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh? Oh, okay, a lot of you. I think that song is really strange. And I think it's really funny to think about this epic, like, tell him I am who I am. And Moses and Aaron are like, all right, we're going up to Pharaoh. And they get up there, and you know, the thing is just getting all fired up. And then it's just, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Like, uh, I just, okay. I think it was different than that. Here's what happens, though. They say, let us people go. 
And Pharaoh says, no. He arrogantly asks, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? He's about to find out. He not only says no, he makes their labor harder. And Moses goes back to God and questions what is going on. Seems like the people of God are losing even when they obey. Chapter 6, here we go. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For the strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I'm the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the Lord shows off his power again. He remembers his covenant, and we get a glimpse into the plan of redemption. God was going to have his people know him personally, not just crush Satan, not just get people from every nation, but have a personal relationship with his own people. And to do that, he was going to rescue them from slavery. He says that he will redeem them, and he says he's going to redeem them through great acts of judgment. Continuing in the story, we get to see the great acts of judgment that God unleashed on Egypt. This is found in Exodus 7 through 10. You might know this as the 10 plagues. Probably, probably heard of those. You're familiar with this story. These great acts of judgment were literally God systematically picking off the gods of Egypt. All of them screaming, I am the one true God. I am greater than my enemies. And none of them can stop me from getting my people. I want you to see this. First plague, turning the Nile River into blood. This would have been devastating for them. The Nile River was worshipped as a godlike entity. The life source of their economy and individual families. And God just devastates them because he is where they should be finding true life. Second plague, frogs everywhere. Not only would that be really annoying, but scholars say that one of the Egyptian gods had a frog for its head, and now God was literally making these people step on the head of their own gods. Gnats, this would have just been terrible, but it destroyed crops, rendering the harvest gods useless. Fourth plague, flies, more attacks on their way of life. Fifth plague, actual diseases on their livestock, once again showing where's your gods now. I'm the true God. Sixth plague, boils, any attack on the gods of healing. Seventh plague, hail, none of their sky gods could protect them now. Eighth plague, locusts, more attacks on their livelihood. And then ninth plague, darkness, one of the more popular gods of Egypt, the sun god, was completely overwhelmed by the power of our God. In all these great acts of judgment, Pharaoh still refused to submit. So the last plague was the worst. In Exodus 12, 1 through 14, what we learn is that God, I'm not going to read all of this, he wants Israel to remember this as the Passover. And what he tells Israel is to, is to slaughter a lamb and put the blood over your doorpost, and he's going to come through in judgment. And all the people who are not under the blood, all the firstborn sons of those Egyptian households, will be killed. And so after giving instructions for how he wanted this to be remembered, he shows them what he's going to do. Moves throughout Egypt, striking down every single firstborn who isn't covered by the blood of the slaughtered lamb. So God keeps his promise, he attacks Egypt, and even Pharaoh's son dies. It's almost as if God is saying, you mess with my son, I'm messing with yours. It's devastating power. 
Then Pharaoh releases the people of God, gets them out of there. Then we bring us to the moment of the Red Sea. The rescued people are free from their slavery, and they are being guided by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Then they get to the Red Sea, and they are trapped. There's suffering and chaos in front of them, and when they're camping there, the Pharaoh decides that he changes his mind. He sends his armies after the people of God. You can imagine this drama, right? Like, how are we going to cross this? I thought we were just redeemed. Now Pharaoh's armies are coming, and they're in this situation, and they were finally rescued. Exodus 14, 13, and 14, look at this. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. I love this verse. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Listen, the only, the only thing the people of God had to do was to realize they couldn't do anything at all. And God splits the Red Sea, his people get across safely, and God's enemies drown and are defeated. God's enemies defeated and salvation for his people. After crossing the Red Sea, they're to travel for a while until they get to a place called Mount Sinai. On our way there, they got manna and water supernaturally taking care of them as this newly rescued people. And when they get to the mountain, Moses goes up and receives the law. Shorthand, uh, Ten Commandments. You've probably heard of this. And the covenant is established with God and his people. A continuation of the covenants that he's making that will fully be seen in Christ. So this blessed nation should be an obedient nation. Not in order to be rescued, but because they were already rescued by God's grace. Think about that. God didn't come into Egypt, drop the Ten Commandments, and say, obey this perfectly and I'll rescue you. He rescues them and says, here's how to live like a rescued people. They would be a holy nation of priests that were meant to show off their God to the world. They were given a bunch of commands in order to show how to do that. But the commands were also given to show them how sinful they were and how much they needed saved from their sin. We call this the Old Covenant and more on this for the rest of Hebrews. So we're going to get that fleshed out a lot. But all of Israel's history would show they could never keep up their side of the covenant to perfectly obey the law. Their sin issue never got dealt with. Even this covenant was meant to point to Jesus. And so God gives Moses specific instructions to construct a tabernacle that would be his dwelling place in their midst. And Moses was faithful to do it. The people of God were still God's house, but this tabernacle showed them the reality of God dwelling among them. Okay. Now, hopefully to make your hearts burn, I want you to see how amazing this is. The Jesus story is the fulfillment of this story and worthy of so much more glory. Think about it. When Jesus was a baby, an evil king ordered that babies would be killed because the coming Messiah was a threat to his throne. And a brave woman still helped even that little baby boy, Jesus. And Jesus would be the one who would go on a rescue mission to rescue his people from bondage. And even though we don't have a Pharaoh ruling over us, we're all enslaved to sin. And God's enemies now are the devil and all of those who were enslaved by them and death itself. We are all enslaved by sin apart from God working in us by nature and by choice. And then there's this little moment in Luke chapter 9 that I want you to see. In Jesus' life, there's this epic moment called the Mount of Transfiguration. I want you to see it. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Look who it is, Moses and Elijah. (laughs) 
who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. First of all, it's amazing that Moses got to see this, testifying to things that would be spoken of later. That spoke of his departure word, another idea of that word there is actually exodus, exiting, a departure. They were speaking of the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, that he would die and rise again. So another theme of the exodus story is rescue. How did God rescue his people in Egypt? He judged his enemies by killing the firstborn son of those who were not under the blood of the slaughtered lamb. Listen, how did God rescue us? He judges his enemies by killing death and Satan in the power of sin, by killing his own son as the slaughtered lamb of God. And now, those of us who by faith put the blood of Jesus on the doorposts of our hearts are passed over. The judgment is not on us, only blessing. Jesus, not only the one who rescues, the one who was slaughtered for the rescue. Another theme, provision. In his life and teaching, Jesus compares himself to the water and manna that the Israelites had as their provision. And Jesus himself is the provision of God to sustain us until he welcomes us home. Another theme, covenant. In the covenant with Israel, they were given the way to live out their identity as the people of God. They were shown how to worship. They were shown what morality looked like. They were shown how to govern themselves. And ultimately, they agreed to obey these fully. But as we previously mentioned, they continually broke their covenant. They still had a sin problem. Sin had not yet been fully dealt with, but God promised a new covenant through his prophets. Even Moses, at the end of his life, in the last book that he wrote in Deuteronomy, says, there's coming one among you that will be a greater prophet than I. It was the covenant brought by his own son, Jesus. This covenant relies on the work and person of Christ. It will never be broken. We're given new hearts that will not fall away from Jesus, but will be lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then tabernacle. Jesus Christ comes to earth, and he is the final fulfillment of God being with his people. He is the tabernacle. He is the temple of God. And he is building his church and his house as he saves his people and indwells them by his spirit. And Ben, as you make your way on up to lead us tonight, I want you to have all of this in your mind and turn back to verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let the glory of Jesus in the story of Moses move you to hold fast to your confidence and boast in your hope in Christ alone. He has delivered you. He has given you his law on your heart. He has provided for you. And he will bring you all the way home. Let's stand and sing.